Well, as we continue our series in Galatians, we're going to talk about adoption today. Divine adoption. And some of you uh, were adopted, are adopting, have adopted. And so you are, this subject is very personal for you. Uh, you really relate to it. Uh, some of you know uh, that Pastor Brian, who was helping lead our worship singing today, uh, was, uh, he and Sarah, who's going to sing at the end of the service, they're in the process of adopting a child from Ethiopia, have been for the last year and a half, two years. And uh, some of you know that Jenny, one of our other worship leaders, her and her husband, Kevin, uh, have been in the process of adopting a couple boys from Haiti. And uh, there's a number of you that have told me you're either in that process or you've told me you're adopted. So this subject means a lot. Well, in our family, we have felt the ripple effects of adoption when it's precious and when it's done with a spirit of love. And, and some of you know that my mother was adopted as a little girl. Uh, for reasons that we don't fully understand, her mom just didn't take care of her either because of sickness or irresponsibility. And her dad was a doctor who contracted tuberculosis when she was just you know, a new girl, a little newborn girl. And so he made arrangements for my mother to be adopted by her uncle and aunt. And uh, they started that process. And here's a picture of my mom about the time that she was adopted. And uh, so now I've got that on her. I'm just kidding. No, but her, her aunt and uncle, uh, William and Marion Brewster, adopted her. And here's a picture of all three of them right around the time of the adoption. And I am so thankful for Bill and Marion Brewster. Some of you had a chance to meet them over the last years. My, they, they both are, they've passed away now. But, oh my goodness, the ripple effects. Last night I called my mom and I said, Mom, how has adoption affected you? She said, oh my. She said, Grandma, her mom, my grandma, said that when we first came, when I first came to them, she said, my hair showed such an evidence of malnutrition. She said, I honestly don't think I would have lived to adulthood if they hadn't adopted me. She said, they exposed me to music, to the church, to Christ, to humor. She said, I think that's even where I got my sense of humor. Some of you know, she's very funny. And so just the ripple effect of that, and then she said, and then just how proud we are of you, uh, kids, and then your kids, and this whole, it literally changed the direction for someone. And I hope you see today that what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, what the Father, the Heavenly Father wants for us, what the Holy Spirit wants for us, I mean, all three of the Trinity are in conspiracy to change our lives. So if you're following along, here's what I hope you see this morning as we study more in Galatians. We've been looking at this subject for the last couple weeks, but Galatians teaches us that we are justified by faith in Christ. It's grace. It's nothing we deserve. We're justified by trusting in what Christ has done for us. That's how the relationship gets started. It's also how the relationship continues, as Steve taught us last week. But a lot of people, when they hear, okay, justified, which means, by the way, literally means, and this is in notes, but it means to be declared righteous or made right with God. And, and so a lot of people, when they hear that, they don't hear how dramatic or impacting that is. Unfortunately, we reduce it to something like this. We think it means forgiveness. It does mean forgiveness. But if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you see in these chapters as we study them. That being justified by faith in Christ means far more than being forgiven. 
far more than being forgiven, as if that wasn't great in itself. But I want to explain this. As I said a couple weeks ago, being forgiven is kind of a negative way of explaining what's happened between us and God. To be forgiven means that he says, you may go, you are released of the charges against you. You may go. You're free. That is, again, a very happy thing. But he doesn't stop there. Justified means that he says, you may come into a relationship with me. I want you, I've chosen you, and I want you to know me, and I want to know you, and I want us to be in a relationship that is not only going to be for now, but forever. It's a whole different way of living. So literally, what he does is when we are justified, it changes our status, our legal status, our standing, what we inherit, everything. And just like it changed my mom's life. Mom's life. By the way, uh, before she was adopted, her name changed when she adopt, was adopted. Her biological mother had named her Harriet Jane Lee. I, I, I think my mom was ready to have her name changed. Yeah. <laughs> if there's any Harriets here, I, I mean no offense. But her new name became Jane Lee Brewster. You know, the Bible says is that when you and I put our faith in Christ, is that we are justified and our name changes, our, our legal status changes. It's binding. Nothing can change that. Wow, it's huge. So here's what I hope you also see is in this passage today, is that God, one of the things that besides just being forgiven is that God adopts us as his children and gives us a new identity. God adopts us as his children and gives us a new identity. Now, why, why are we talking about all this before we look at this passage? For those of you that haven't been here, this is your first week, I just want to catch you up real quick. The letter to Galatians is unlike any other letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote half the New Testament. The reason he's writing this letter is because some people who were Gentiles, now just a little review from a couple weeks ago, those of you who are here, a Gentile is anyone who is not what? Jewish. Go ahead, that's great. So these people, <clears throat> Christianity first came to Jewish people. The Messiah was Jewish. So all the people that believed in the first few months and years were Jewish. So that they had to figure out is, <clears throat> do I stop being a Jew? Do I stop practicing my Judaism? Or how do I live differently now? Well, that was their challenge. So what they said was, some of them called Judaizers that tried to make Judaism and Christianity married together, said now we've got to not only believe in Jesus, plus continue to be Jewish. We've got to follow the, the books of Moses and the law of God and all the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. We've got to follow circumcision and all the stuff that made you Jewish. So what happened is, is when Christianity reached these Gentiles northwest of Jerusalem, the question on the table became, what do we need to do since we've never been Jewish? Do we need to become Jewish now? And what was going on is this group of Judaizers, after Paul planted these churches in this area called Galatia, these Judaizers, these teachers came in and began to teach another gospel. They began to call these Gentile Christians who already trusted in Christ half-converts. They said, you're halfway there. Grace got you halfway. Now you need to become a follower of Moses and become Jewish. And when Paul hears this, he is ticked. Because he says, they're confusing your real identity. 
And when you don't know who you are, you will not live rightly. You'll be all messed up. You'll be all confused. And we've all seen this. When kids don't know who they are, they make bad choices. They go wrong directions that were never intended for them to go. But when you and I understand who we are, I mean, you can tell kids that know that they're loved and accepted and good with their parents, friends, a lot of times they just flourish. There's a freedom. They don't walk around the house on eggshells just waiting to get slammed. There's this freedom that their personality can blossom. All that kind of stuff happens. And so Paul writes this letter to make sure that the Galatian Christians can be free and know who their identity is. You know, sometimes we forget who we are. Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom, when she was still in office, she was traveling around in nursing homes, just greeting people room to room. And she came to this elderly lady's room, and she could tell pretty quick into being introduced to each other that this elderly lady had no idea that she was shaking hands with a famous world politician. So Margaret Thatcher just humbly says, do you know who I am? And the elderly lady looked back at her and said, I have no idea, but if you want to find out, go talk to the nurse down the hallway. <laughs> and you know, we need someone down the hallway to remind us sometimes, don't we? And Galatians does that. It really does. Now, let me say one more thing, and then I want to talk to you about why we need this message, and we'll unpack it. It's interesting to me that Jesus Christ, when he began his ministry, and I talk about this question in your life group questions this week, but in Matthew 4, the first 10 verses, if you notice, when Jesus began his ministry, after his baptism, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tested by the devil. After 40 days of fasting, when the devil comes, notice how he comes to Jesus. The very first words he says is, if you are the Son of God. He says that to him twice. Now, I just want to ask you something. Is that even up for a vote? Is that even a question? But what is his method? His method is if he can cut off your identity, your true identity of the past, you will live wrongly. You won't live out God's calling in your life with the same spirit, the same freedom. But if you begin to grow in this understanding, friends, you will and I will live differently. We will. So why do we need this message? Because we all forget who we are. We do. I've, if I've learned anything about myself, I've learned that I get this spiritual amnesia. I just forget who I am for a while, and I need reminders all the time. The second reason is we all struggle with doubt. Even if you're here and you're not interested in Jesus yet, you struggle with self-doubt. But the other reason we need this is that this subject we're going to talk about, divine adoption, is so massive. This message that I'm sharing today will never be enough. It can only get you started or be a reminder. This message is so massive that it's something that'll take our whole lifetime to grow in and understand, and into eternity it'll take to understand this. It's so massive. But here's the good news. We can start today, or we can continue today, and we need this reminder. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 23 uh, in chapter 3, and then we'll make our way to chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm going to spend most of our time in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And I've listed those on the notes, so get ready to read those out loud together. We're going to mainly look at that. What I hope you'll see today is that we're not just forgiven, we've been given the status of adoption. 
But it's not just enough to know the status of our adoption in our heads. God wants us to know the experience of adoption. That's when the real freedom comes, when people really experience this reality, and it's more than words. So if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones there in front of you. You can turn to page 811. It'll get you there in express service, okay? Page 811 in the black Bible. Let me just pray while we're getting ready to look at this passage. Now, Lord, I remember as I studied this week, that this passage shows us again that it's not just about getting a bigger IQ. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, to make them understood and a knowledge that's different than just intellectual knowledge. So help us not to miss this, Lord. Open this up to us even more in the days ahead. And I pray you'll use this message as part of that process. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so here we go. Uh, we're going to look at verse 23. I'll move through these first, this first section a little quicker. I'm picking up from where Steve left off. Last week, he talked about the place of the law of God in our lives, and so now I'll continue. Here's what Paul says. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. When you hear locked up, do you think free? No. So... The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now the word guardian will get mentioned one more time in chapter 4, but what does this mean? Paul is saying this. The Old Testament was just meant to prepare us for a different life by faith in Jesus Christ. So the law has a place. It guides us. In fact, the law shows us how much we need the Savior. It shows us how much we need the Messiah that's coming. And uh, as John Stott has said so well, let me read what he wrote. He says this. He says, Greek families that were well enough off to have slaves chose one of them, usually an old and trusted slave, to be in charge of their child or children from the ages of 6 to 16. This custodian went with the child to school to see that no harm or mischief came to him. He was not the schoolmaster. He had nothing to do with the actual teaching of the child. It was only his duty to take the, the child safely to school and deliver him to the teacher. That, Paul says, is how the law works. It delivers us to the place of faith in Christ. And so it had a preparatory way. What Paul is saying here is the law was just a custodian. It was just meant to protect us, to give us boundaries, and to make sure that we didn't make unwise choices if we would follow it but it wasn't enough to save us. It didn't have enough to give us life. So we go on here in verse 26, excuse me. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Literally, it's you are all sons of God through faith is what the original says. I'll come back to that. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I don't know, I thought about this this morning when I put my clothes on. There's not much closer to us than clothes. Have you noticed that when you wear them? I know some of us wear them a little looser than others, or whatever, but it's still close to us. And also it goes with us wherever we go. And also it becomes, for some of us, a real identifying mark. Some of us put a lot of time into our fig leaves, don't we? And so it kind of became a waste. So he says, now you've been clothed in Christ when you were baptized in Christ, okay? So it goes on. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice what he's doing here. Why does he say this? For there is neither Jew 
nor Gentile. Is he saying those things don't exist anymore? No. He's saying they still exist, but now they've become less important. What matters about your identity and mine, if we live in Christ, is that now Jesus is our identifying mark. Jesus is everything to us. He's the way we get to be known. So, for instance, when these Jewish Judaizers were coming to these Galatians and going, you're a Gentile. Halfway, we're Jews. You see how that kind of arrogance and that pride system? It's not God's way of grace. And so he says, no matter what kind of distinctions you try and set up. You know, he was speaking this into a world that was absolutely paternalistic and could, couldn't give a rip about women. Women were treated inferior. He says there's neither male or female. That's not the way, he's not saying that there's not still men and women in the world. He's saying that when this justifying act of Jesus came along, it's for women as well as men. It's a gift to both, equally. Therefore, no more of this distinction stuff when it comes to that. You and I are one in Christ. You know why we can walk in this room and sing together even if we're from different places? If we trust in Christ, we are one. You're my brother. You're my sister. Even if you're from a different denomination or a different nation. Even if you're from a different economic class or a different IQ class. We are one in Christ. These things no longer are as important. And some of us put all our stock in our family name. And there's nothing wrong with having a good family name. But if you love your parents or your family name more than Christ, you're making a big mistake. That is not your ultimate identity. Your ultimate identity, if you trust in Christ, is Christ. Wow. Even to be with my name next to his is staggering. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now he talks about this. Here's what he's saying. If you've trusted in Christ, then way back in the Old Testament, when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I will bless your seed, which meant I will send a Messiah one day through your family line, your lineage, and I will bless the whole world through him, Jesus Christ. So everyone who trusts in Christ can know this blessing, and we become heirs. That means that now we're in the will. Now, again, as we get to these next few verses, let me unpack that a little more. What I'm saying is, is that as long as an heir is underage or a minor, she's a minor. He is no different, she is no different from a slave, although they own the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage or minors, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. So he says, we used to be slaves. Slaves to the things that pulled on us in this world. We found our identity and that kind of stuff. And also, we were minors. So even if we wanted to get to the inheritance that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, under the old system of trying to follow the law, we were still underage. But when Christ came, he said, now the trust, now the inheritance can come your way. And it's such a huge inheritance that it'll come your way now, and it'll keep going on for eternity. It's massive. But you're in when you're in Christ. Wow, when you put your trust in Christ. This is the stuff that happens besides forgiveness. And then he says, you used to be slaves. I don't know about you. I'm ready for good news if he says we used to be slaves. And it all starts in verse 4. So let's read it together off the notes, out loud, and together if you would, please. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now here's what I want you to see. In these verses, he talks about that what changed when we became justified was not just that we are now forgiven, you may go. But that now you are justified, you may come into this relationship. You have been divinely adopted by me, God the Father. And he wants us to understand that our status, our identity is completely changed. Our names changed, our inheritance has changed, everything's changed. Our identity has changed. But you know, again, the status of that adoption is different than experiencing that adoption. And so what I want to do in the time that we have is I want to unpack that. Now, if you look at that, by the way, we didn't read verse 7 yet, did we? Okay, let's try that. So, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, what I hope you'll see in that first gray box at the top is that there are two key phrases in these verses that I want to unpack. First, God sent his son. You'll see that in the top line. If you want to just underline that, we're going to come back to that. This tells us that he did that to change our status. But then there's a second God sent in the third line. God sent the spirit of his son so that we would experience adoption. So he sent his son that we might have the status of adoption, and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of the adoption. And I hope you'll see how rich this is as we walk through the passage. So you ready? Here we go. First, under the status of adoption, God sent his son into the world to redeem us from the curse. God sent his son into the world to redeem us from the curse. If you weren't here last Sunday, I hope you'll listen to the message online or pick up a CD. Steve talked to us about how the law, when you and I set out to live by some performance, justifying performance record of keeping rules and laws, that the problem with that is that the Old Testament says, whoever does not keep every one of the laws is under a curse. Again, Galatians 3.12, if you want to look back at it. But Galatians 3.13 says is that Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that he could give us all the privileges that come with being not only forgiven but justified. Now again, I don't know about you, but right there alone, just to be redeemed from the curse of the law would be enough to sing the rest of the time. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what he was wanting to do. He wants your good and my good. That's, that's how intentionally is. So what's redeem mean? Redeem means to buy back, to set free by paying a price. Some of you know that Abraham Lincoln had this practice where he would set slaves free when he saw them in New Orleans because it bothered him so badly. But what happened is, is that in order to adopt, he had to redeem us. He had to buy us back. He had to pay the price because we were slaves. And how did he do that? With his own shed blood. That was a sacrifice that alone would be acceptable to be God because Jesus was the only person that kept the law perfectly. Therefore, when you and I put our trust in Christ, what God does is an amazing transfer. He takes our curse, our sinfulness, and he transferred it onto Jesus so that as Jesus dies and his blood is shed, what God does is transfers his righteousness, his legal standing, his privileges, his inheritance onto us. Unbelievable. 
He, he redeemed us from the curse of law, and it cost him his blood. Some of you that want to adopt are already learning that it costs a lot of money to adopt. Well, it costs way more for God to adopt us. The ultimate price, and Jesus gladly paid it. So that by faith, if you're following along, we might receive the full rights as sons. So that by faith in Christ, we might receive full rights as sons. Now, some of you, the whole time you've been reading this passage, it's been kind of bothering you that it says sons, sonship. Is God playing favorites here? Like, what about daughters? So listen to what Tim Keller says, because this is really important to grasp this. He says, many take offense at using the masculine word sons to refer to all Christians, male and female. Some would prefer to translate verse 26, you are all children of God. But if we are too quick to correct the original biblical language, we miss the revolutionary and radically egalitarian nature of what Paul is saying. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Some of you know this. Therefore, son literally meant legal heir, which was a status forbidden to women. But the gospel tells us that we are all sons of God in Christ. We are all heirs, both men and women. Similarly, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. If we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim it is. And I appreciated that explanation a lot. So he wanted us to know full rights as sons. Some of you know that if you're still a minor, there's some things you can't do. You're not allowed to yet. You have to wait. And so what this passage is saying is under the old system, we had to wait. The will wasn't going to be ready yet until we reached the age. But what God did is he adopted us and he made us full heirs now and forever. So we're no longer minors. We're no longer slaves. If you're following along, if we're in Christ, we're no longer minors or slaves. Look at 1 John 3.1. I remember this verse in high school when this hit me like a ton of bricks. And here's the message paraphrase. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea of who he is or what he's up to. You know, one of the reasons we exist as a church is not just to gather here with each other and say, us four and no more. We exist as a church because there are people in the world that we work with, that are in our families, that we go to school with, who don't yet know who he is or what he's up to, and we need to let them know the good news that God has already done something for them that they can be invited into. Friends, here's one of the things I hope you'll see. In adoption, just as if I was to go and legally adopt someone, go through that process, and in the courthouse, their name would be legally binding. We could say, here's the document. In the same way, the moment you trusted Christ, God allowed you to begin experiencing all of the privileges of the status of Christ in your life. God looks at you differently. God allows you to know unbelievable kinds of things inside your life. And that status is something we should claim. When the evil one comes to you and says, if you are a son of God, if you are a daughter of God, what are you going to do? At that moment, if you've trusted in Christ, you need to say, it's done. God already sent his son. He took care of it and he opened a way that by faith, by trusting in him, 
And I rely on what he has done for me, not on what I do. It's that, not that what I do doesn't matter, but now I even obey because of what he's done for me, because he bought me. It's a completely different motivation. I obey because I love. I obey because I want to, not just because I have to. I obey because it's a get-to to do that with the Father, now that he's done so much for me. And when people have been adopted, and they remember what they used to be like, you should see many times their response to their parents. They're like just in shock. Does it mean they never misbehave? No. But they have a completely different appreciation if they remember where they came from. And we will too. So here's the second thing, is it's not enough just to have the status of adoption. What about the experience of adoption? Let me try and set it up this way. I told you that Paul is writing this letter because he says, I want you to understand that what the Judaizers are telling you is not true. But they're telling you a version of Christianity that'll mess your head up and I'll throw you back into all kinds of performance plans again. So be careful about that. Now listen to this story by Jack Hayford. I heard it years ago. He said, imagine with me a child with a club foot who suffers the torment of being unwanted and overlooked at the orphanage. And then picture two kinds of parents adopting him. The first set of parents bring the boy home and sit him down for a talk, which goes like this. Look, we felt sorry for you, so we adopted you. Of course, you'll never be like one of our kids, but we'll provide for your basic needs, and we hope you're grateful. Since we didn't have to adopt you, we expect you to behave yourself. Life's not going to be easy with that club foot, but we expect you to make the best of it. Abide by these conditions and you won't have to worry. Otherwise, then imagine a second set of parents bringing this same boy home, sitting him down with these words. Welcome to your new home, Billy. You're part of the family now. We intend to love you just like we love our other children. You'll always be our son, Billy, no matter what you do. You're never going back to that orphanage, ever. They continue. We know you've had trouble with nightmares, so we've installed a door between your bedroom and our bedroom, and we'll, you know, and, and your bedroom and ours. And if during the night you become afraid, run into our bedroom and we'll hold you. And about your foot, we're going to have the best doctors look at it. Someday, Billy, you're going to run like the other kids. Welcome home, Billy. I want to ask, can you tell the difference in those experiences. One person has the status of adoption. The other person has the experience of adoption. And that's what God wants us to know. And some of us, we've gone to church our whole lives, and we still think of God as a taskmaster. We still think of him as a slave driver that basically says, keep your nose clean and everything will be fine between us. Otherwise, Steve was telling me, you know, it's such a privilege to teach with Steve and Brian and Brian. Oh, my goodness. What a gift to our church. As Steve was saying this week to me, or the last week when we were preparing for this, he said, it's passages like this one that help me understand who God is and who I am in Christ that changed my whole life. That freedom that began to come into Steve's life can come into your life and mine. And I want to pray that in the next few minutes, God will help you somehow begin to understand the experience of adoption and not just the legal status of it. So here we go. Notice that God didn't just send his son into the world to redeem us from the curse. He went farther. God sent his spirit into our hearts 
so that we can cry out. God sent his spirit into our hearts so we cry out. That word for cry out or to call has an intensity to it. It means that you do it with passion. You do it with feeling. How many of us have met people that say they're Christians? It's so obvious that they don't have any kind of feeling with God. It's so obvious that God has never got touched them to the feeling level. And I am not trying to exalt feelings, but I am saying this, friends. If God never touches your emotions, something's wrong. On the other hand, if God only touches your emotions, there's something wrong. But God touches our whole lives when Jesus comes into our life. And he will not stop until he has all of us. And because of that, because there is such tremendous gratitude when we remember who we were before Christ and where we were headed, that, oh, wow, everything changes when we meet Jesus Christ. And there's no way for us not to be touched to the place where we go, wow, we cry out. So what do we cry out? He uses this phrase, Abba, Father. Now, some of you go, I need some help on that one. Jesus, when he was here on earth, spoke, you know, the Hebrews spoke a language called Aramaic. So even on the cross, when he was dying, he yelled out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And when he did that, he meant, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was fulfilling Psalm 22.1. And they heard him speak in Aramaic. When Jesus came on the scene, he began to call God Abba. Now, Abba was Aramaic for Papa. The first word that little children would ever say was usually either Emma, Mama, or Abba, Papa, Daddy, Father. And it had both a reverence, a respect for the authority, but also a tenderness. And what Jesus did when he came on the scene is he began to say, Father. He began to call God Father all the time. And some of the religious leaders, it turned them inside out. Because they had decided that God had to, out of deep respect, be held at a distance. And they were right to a point, weren't they? We need to make sure that we never become flip or careless with a God like this. But on the other hand, what happens is so many people are not set free because they see God only at a distance. They see him always looking down and always saying, if you obey, I'll love you. And that's not God. And so Paul says, when you get messed up like that by the Judaizers, it's going to throw you back. So you need to know, he is not just that kind of God. He is Abba, Father. Jesus, when his disciples came to him here on earth, said, teach us how to pray. He says, I'll do that. Here's how I want you to start. Our Father in heaven. Talk to him that way. You're going, for real? Nowhere in the Old Testament is God addressed as Father. He's referred to as Father but never, ever addressed. Jesus brought a whole new way to approach God, and he opened up a whole new way now that our status has changed. And friends, do you live in this? Do you know it? Do you find yourselves with the witness of the Holy Spirit at times crying out, Father, help me right now. Come really close, Father. Help me. Father, I have sinned against you. Please let me know that my status has not changed, that it's a lock, that it's a legal transaction that can never be turned over. And man, I'll tell you, when that begins to happen, incredible. You know, the last words that Jesus prayed on the night before he was crucified and was arrested, the Bible says that he was in the garden and he had this huge cup that he was about to drink of taking the curse for you and me. 
And what did he do? He knelt down, and Mark 14 says he cried out, Abba, Father. And he called out to his father, and now he says, because of what I did on the cross, you can talk to him like that too. He loves you. To his children, if you're following along, God gives his spirit as a gift. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, if you would, here on the screen. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, like this one this morning, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, he says, I guarantee you that you will never ever lose your status and I'm giving you my Holy Spirit so that you know I am so committed to this whole process of sanctifying you and glorifying you. I'm not just going to justify you. I have a whole plan for your life and it's all about salvation. And so some of us, again, have heard these things. We know them backwards and forwards, but then it becomes very personal. Years ago, I remember reading the prodigal son in Luke 15 and just being struck by the love of the father. Some of you know this story. The father had two sons, Jesus said. And Jesus wanted us to understand the father better when he told the story. He said the younger son came to his dad one day and said, I want my inheritance now. In Jesus' day, to say something like this was the ultimate insult. It was like, I hate you. I'd rather have your money than you. Give it to me now. I wish you were dead. So it was totally rude behavior. Unacceptable. The, the, the hearers would have gone, what a loser. He takes his inheritance and he goes off to a far country, like Jesus said, and he squandered it on wine, women, and song. Just pleasure-seeking, just living for the moment. And then his money was gone. And when his money was gone, his friends were gone. He had to find a job because a famine hit the land. And as he's doing the job, you know what it was? This is the ultimate indignity for a Hebrew boy. He's feeding pigs. While he's feeding the pigs, he looks at the pods that they're eating, and even as disgusting as those are, those actually look good to him because he is in the pit. He's in the pig pen. There in the pig pen, though, the Bible says he came to his senses, and he said, I, here's what I'm going to do. All my father's hired servants are eating better than I am. I will arise, I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the Bible says, he got up and went. Now look at this verse, Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you see that right there? He kissed him. Now some of us go, yuck. But the idea here is that in the Hebrew culture, they would kiss on both cheeks. It was a way of saying, I hug you, I kiss you. And then, if that wasn't enough, he said, bring a ring, bring a rope, bring his sandals, kill the fattened calf. My son, who is dead, is alive again. We must celebrate. And he experienced being loved like we can with the divine adoption. And you know what the Holy Spirit does in our lives? He lets us experience again and again and again the Father's kiss. He assures us that we belong to him. And that hasn't changed even when we've sinned. Some of us need to hear this this morning so badly. So some of you know that when I was younger and a dad, a young dad, our kids are all grown up now, that 
I've told this before, but we had a practice that a friend of mine had taught me called the whole long line of boys or the whole long line of girls, depending. Our first two were sons, and our third was a daughter. So I'll just tell you how I told it to our daughter. At night, I, I tried to always make mealtime and bedtime, along with any kind of discipline help that Trish and I needed to work on with the kids. I tried to really give myself to that, even though I had to be gone sometimes, different hours. So at bedtime, many times I would come into their bed at night. We'd talk a little bit about the day. And then I'd always, before we prayed, I'd always tell the whole long line of girls. And so, when Natalie was three years old, say, I'd say to her, you know, Natalie, if they were to line up all the three-year-old girls in a whole long line and tell me that I could pick any girl for my daughter, you know what I'd do? I'd start going down that line. And that line would be very long because God's made a lot of three-year-old girls all over the world, different nations, even people in your class. And there'd be a lot of neat girls because God don't make no junk. But I would go down that line and I would say, you're really neat, but not you. I'm looking for a certain girl. You're neat, but not you. You're neat, but not you. And I'd get all the way to the end of the line and I still hadn't found the girl that I wanted for my daughter. You know who would be standing at the end of the line? And Natalie would go, me. And I remember she'd say that. I'd say, that's right. And you know, I like the way God made you. I like your body. I like your smile. I like your laugh. I like your personality. I love the way God made you. And I just want you to never, ever, 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 ever forget that I'd pick you again. And then I'd hug her. And I'd kiss her. You know what God wants to say to you if you've put your trust in Christ? I chose you. I picked you. I want you. Trust me. Now, there were days when I had to do discipline that I'm sure Nat wasn't so excited about the whole long line of girls story. <laughs> but here's what we learned. It was on those nights more than ever that she needed to hear me say that. A loving father will both discipline and cherish a child like that. And God does that with us. Wow. Picked you. So if you're following along, his spirit gives passion intimacy and assurance with God. His passion gives, his spirit gives passion, intimacy, assurance with God. He secures us and assures us. Oh, he does. Brennan Manning used to love to tell about the Irish priest who was walking through his parish one day along a road and he saw this elderly peasant who was working, but he was praying as he was working. So he was intrigued by this and he stopped and said, that's amazing that you're praying while you're working like that. And the elderly peasant looked at him and said, the father is very, very fond of me. The Father is very, very fond of me. Oh, when you live that way, you work differently. You obey differently. You reach out differently. You pass on the love to other people differently, don't you? So, as we close, I just want to come back to this. I wish I really got everything I just said to you. But here's what I'm learning. I'm still learning this basic lesson. And I need to come back to it again and again. I need to keep learning it. Uh, a few months ago, an elderly lady in our church who prays for me every day, and she has a spiritual sensitivity to God, she called me and she said, Jeff, I don't know if I'm right about this, but as I've been praying for you each day, I just sense that you don't yet realize who you are in God. You don't yet realize who God's made you to be. You don't yet realize all that he wants you to understand about your identity in him. I said, well, please keep praying for me then. And she has been. And you know, we need to pray that for each other. 
And so this week, I hope that you'll pray and you'll start praying this way. Even if you've been far from God, you know what grace does? Grace always leads you back to the Father. Grace doesn't lead you away from the Father. It always leads you back. So you'll pray, Father, Father. And so here's the closing prayer. Father, keep teaching me to live as your dearly loved child. Keep teaching me to live as your dearly loved child who is an heir, who has an inheritance because of you. Now, we've had a testimony several times in this series. A few weeks ago, you heard nine of them. We thought before the choir finished today that it might help just to hear one more uh, person in our church who's being affected by this work of grace that God wants us to know when we're justified and sanctified and glorified in Christ. So listen as Brad Warren shares, our choir director, and then he'll lead the choir in a song that I think will bring this together for us. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Well, this topic has a particular interest and importance for me personally. As some of you know, about two months ago, my father died, and this month marks the fourth anniversary of my mother's death. And you know, growing up in a family with parents, it's really uh, easy to develop a sense of security that you can take for granted. And I was surprised when even as a grown man with my own family, how after my dad died, I had this odd sense of feeling alone, like I can only describe as someone who might have been orphaned. And in the days just after dad died, I was talking to one of my friends about this, and he reminded me about John 14, where just before Jesus was going to the cross, he was speaking to his disciples, and he said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And that was a huge promise that he makes to all of us who are trusting in Christ Jesus. But he kept that promise. And he sent the Holy Spirit, the one who comforts us and abides with us, encourages us, and he's kept that promise to me. In these days, since my father's death, I'm learning more and more about what it means to depend on him for all things. And make no mistake, life can be hard. But he is comforting me, giving his presence, and telling me that he is to me an everlasting father who is making for me a secure future. I am not alone. I am not an orphan, for he has come to me. And today, as Sarah and the choir are going to sing, there's a phrase in the verse that goes, if such a thing as grace exists, then grace was made for lives like this. And I'm so grateful this morning that in God's grace, he has not left us as orphans, but he has come to us, and we can trust him. I know it sounds like a churchy word. You know, when they sang hallelujah, that's Hebrew for praise you, God. And when you experience adoption, when you remember who you were, but now who you are in Christ, it becomes very personal. And that's what God wants for us. And the more that that grows in us, the more we go deeper into that kind of freedom, it's amazing what kind of people we become. And Jesus has made it possible. So I hope as you leave here, you'll find yourself saying, Hallelujah. Praise you, God. If you haven't ever trusted Christ, we'd love to help you move in that direction or talk with you about questions you might have. So please know that we're always around after the service. But in the meantime, let me just pray for us as we go, okay? Now, God... There will be things that happen this week, either by our weakness or our sinfulness, that we will sometimes do. We're still unlearning our old ways and learning your new ways. So help us to learn how to pray 
Father, Abba, thank you for adopting me. Show me how to live this new life in the power of your spirit because of what Jesus has done. Show us how to do that, Lord. I pray you'll help each person, no matter who's struggling with their identity here. Help us. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless you.